Welcome to The Five, a podcast built to inform nonprofits about critical functions that will improve their organization. I'm your host, Eric Morcheski, CEO and co-founder of Nimble Strategies. We are bringing The Five to you as a part of our company's five-year anniversary celebration with thought leaders from across the country. Welcome to The Five. Welcome to the latest episode of The Five. Today, we're here with Ron Waterman, the founder and CEO of StorySmart. Ron is here today to talk about documentary filmmaking and how that can play a role in your nonprofit's existence. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ron. Eric, it's a pleasure to be with you. I always enjoy spending time with you, and I love this topic and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Ron. We're, we're really looking forward to it. I think it's a really interesting and, and a different topic than maybe some nonprofits are thinking of. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Ron? Sure. Uh, well, I'm the founder and CEO of StorySmart, and StorySmart is a cinematic storytelling company that enables discerning clients to have their story produced by professional filmmakers in a Hollywood-quality way, but they own it as though they did it themselves. Now, our focus has been primarily on this, this topic of documentary filmmaking, and my background is not documentary filmmaking. Uh, full transparency, I was the... Uh, I've had career ADD. I do have a degree in journalism and communications, and I was going to, actually was going to go to film school and ended up pursuing journalism instead, uh, and then worked in local government and ended up working for 17 years for the St. Louis Cardinals, where I was the VP of communications. And what I saw during that period of time really informs everything that I do today, which is we're living through this really amazing time period where communication technology has been democratized to the point where nonprofit organizations, museums, individuals, frankly, can um, reach anyone anywhere in the world using things like this, like a podcast, right? Like this is an example of you being a media outlet um, and producing your own content, right? And that is the big paradigm shift. And so I, I founded StorySmart really to help people um, share their story in an impactful way that connects with their target audience. And I, you know, one of the things I try to drive home to people is you are a media outlet. You are, you're the big network. You're the, you're the big film studio. And so that means you need to think like a media outlet and produce your own content and own your own story. And, and when I say own, I really mean literally take responsibility for sharing it and literally own the copyright on the content, because that's what the big media outlets do. I think it's a, a great point. I mean, I we were chatting a little bit earlier about the idea of 10 years ago, or especially if you go back 20 years, there wasn't opportunities other than the primary networks on television or radio to be really your own media outlet. And now you have I mean, Netflix and Hulu and all of those, but you also have YouTube, which, I mean, building your own YouTube channel has has brought people to fame and to uh, maybe not to fortune as many as they claim they are, but they, there has been a no, lot. No, but they, they, I mean, just look at how the politicians act, right? Like, you know, when they're, when somebody makes an announcement that they're running for office, it's a video, like they're just posting a video, right? Like we had a president who tweeted all the time and, and when he would tweet, people would react and right. Like, so that's the fundamental reality is there's been this democratization of, of, of media and the barrier to entry to communicate and connect with your own audience 
um, isn't there anymore. It used to be that if you wanted um, a documentary to be made about you, you would have to convince somebody like a Ken Burns, right, to, to produce that or go to a local media outlet. And I'll never forget, I mean, there, there was sort of that paradigm shift hap happened for me with the Cardinals. You know, I realized that we were set up to spoon feed information to newspaper writers primarily to write about the team in the hopes the fans would read about it uh, and then they would buy tickets, right? But we had 13.7 million people going to our website every month during the baseball season. Right. Like, I mean, we had this uh, we had this massive audience that we could communicate with if we were set up to do that. And so we went about setting ourselves up to do that. I ended up hiring filmmakers, journalists to, to, to share our story. And, you know, I mean, something as mundane or as exciting, depending on your point of view, as the bacon wrapped hot dog. <laughs> uh, I know how that well, could be considered mundane. <laughs> that is, yeah, exciting. <laughs> yeah, you know. When I, I'll never forget, when we released the, the new menu, you know, we did a story about the bacon wrapped hot dog and the amount of views that we got on our website about that were just tremendous. And it, it sort of makes sense, right? Like we're in this world where if you want to find out about something, what's the first thing that you do? You go and search it, right? Or you ask Alexa, you know, <laughs> or eventually it'll be our, we'll have a little AI assistant, right? Like, yeah. but it's going to scour the internet and it's going to come back, right? Like, so... So if you run a nonprofit, uh, you need to realize that you're your own best opportunity to share your story. So you need to be sharing your story on your website. You need to be using social media. You need to be putting a face to your mission. You need to be using storytelling, right? Like you need to be investing in telling your own story. And you can use that, both the process of storytelling to help raise money around that, and you can make money if you if you really invest in high quality. I mean, it, there's this renaissance happening in documentary filmmaking where it's gone from, you know, I think I shared with you beforehand that when I was in high school, I had the, uh, the soccer coach for our, our school uh, was also a social studies teacher. And we called him Captain Video because he preferred to pop in a documentary about whatever topic and have us watch that rather than teach. Uh, and I don't blame him. But back then documentaries, gosh, they were just painful to watch. They were boring. But now, I mean, they're so entertaining. Uh, and then Truman and Capote came along back in, I guess it was 50s or 60s and wrote In Cold Blood. And he wrote it like a novel. And it just transformed the publishing industry. That transformation is taking place within documentary. And there are so many different platforms to to get a story out there, right? Like it, feel, it feels like every time I turn on my TV, there's another new channel. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, it's almost, it's overwhelming. Well, and you touched on, I mean, we've talked about YouTube and all the social media, but also your website, you've got, I mean, there are just so many different applications for video at this point in time. Yeah, and so much of what people watch now is really a website, like over the top. Like we cut the cord. I actually cut the cord when I was still with the Cardinals uh, because mm -hmm. the IT director said, hey, here's how much money you can save. I was like, holy cow, that, you know, so I, I cut the cord. And so we've been watching, we've been streaming ever since. We've been a streaming household. And so if you're streaming, that's a website. It's it's over the top. It's it, That's what OTT means, is, is delivering either audio or video uh, over the internet. And mm -hmm. so, like the lines are being blurred. And, and it's funny because I've I commented sometimes when the Post-Dispatch is, you know, 
written about like, oh my gosh, a, a sporting event is no longer on regular TV. It went to cable. Oh, it's terrible. You know, there are people that are not going to be able to watch it off of free TV. You had to pay for cable. Then they've been writing about it's no longer on cable. <laughs> it's streaming. And to me, it's like, it's all TV. Like yeah. whether I'm watching Apple TV or Netflix or KSDK, you know, using rabbit ears, um, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all content. Right. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, you kind of answered my question, but about why documentary filmmaking for nonprofits is, is important and a value there, but let's talk about what kind of five key things should a nonprofit be thinking about and looking at as they start to consider a documentary filmmaking as, as an avenue for them to take, because I think there are probably different pathways they could take through that, that all, I'm sure your, your commentary and your five apply to. So take responsibility for producing. So what I mean by that is make sure that you own the content, the, the copyright on the production itself. Now that's what media outlets do, right? Like Disney makes it a point, you know, Paramount, that's what all these, you know, the, the strike and stuff, you know, a lot of this stuff is really about content, right? It's about controlling it, owning the copyright on it. And the Hollywood production model is really built around that concept, right? A studio owns the production. And in this world that we live in today, if the, you know, in St. Louis, I live in St. Louis, if the Post-Dispatch writes a story about me, the Post-Dispatch owns it, right? If the New York Times does a story, the New York Times owns it. If they take your photo, they own that photo. Um, if you're a nonprofit and you're going to, you could have a documentary produced about you. You could cooperate with the documentary filmmaker, but they would own it. I believe principally that you should own it. And the reason for that is you can control the narrative, right? Um, you can get the story out that you want to get out. Um, you can also profit from it. You can take advantage of this new landscape with streaming. And I think that's very important. Uh, and then there's this concept that I've blogged about called transmedia. And transmedia is this idea of using all of these different platforms to share your story. So if you own the raw interview that was done to produce a documentary, maybe only, it may have been a 30 minute interview, but only five minutes of that interview end up in the documentary film. Well, what about the other 25 minutes? Like there's probably some fantastic stuff in there that you can use on your social media channels that you can put in a podcast that you can share in a blog post. Um, and so, so that idea of owning it, I think is very, very important. And the, the really is sort of the second point is tell a story, you know, make it, make it entertaining, tell a story that connects with your audience, put a face to an issue. And that's the, the renaissance I talked about is the documentaries have become very empty. You, you get sucked in and you don't want to tune out. And so why is that? Because of story. Uh, story is the most important piece, right? So tell a story. Quality. The third point is quality matters. So, so bring in a professional. Bring in a company like StorySmart. There's my shameless plug. It's not how, it's who. But the, the idea of who will help me take this to the next level. Right. And so in the world of filmmaking, you are better off hiring a professional filmmaker to tell your story because they'll do a much better job than you would doing it yourself. But you don't have to sacrifice ownership over that. You don't. Um, and that's the paradigm shift 
that I, I see and is sort of the underlying premise of Story Smart is that we're going to connect you with a professional, but you're going to own it as though you did it yourself. Because so, in the world of creatives, people aren't even aware of this. Like if you hire an ad agency or any sort of creative, uh, whether it's a photographer, videographer, typically you don't own the copyright on their work. You only have a limited license to, that's what they're selling you. Um, like I don't own my wedding photos, you know, because the the paradigm in photography is that the photographer owns the copyright on it and that you get a limited license. And so my message to you as the nonprofit is, no, you can own it and, and you can hire a professional. Um, now you have to make it financially rewarding for them, but you can do a work for hire agreement. You know, the, 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 the fourth point is that you can raise money to do the document. My guess is you have benefactors, donors, that would get excited about the prospect of doing a high quality film. So you can go and raise the resources to do it. And then, you know, sort of the, the fifth point is that you can make money if you in, in invest in, in quality because of the distribution networks that, that exist. If you get a named director to do your film, um, if you work with a distributor, right? If you work with a company that can, you know, it really comes down to how good is it. And, you know, the typical pathway for a film is to go the film festival route. So that's the little, you always see on the movie posters, right? The, um, I, I don't know what the leaves, I guess it is, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Film festival. Uh, yeah, they'll be like true. The winner of best audience favorite yeah. at the Toronto Film Festival. Well, there mm -hmm. there are literally hundreds of film festivals around the world, and you know, film festivals are where the major studios distribute um, and try to put films in front of audiences. Mm -hmm. um, it's also where they go and they find that next great independent filmmaker who's created that beautiful story, and. You know, the one thing about the Hollywood model that people don't realize, and I think is really what was behind the strikes, is for the longest time, the distribution of content and the creation of content had been separated. And that goes back to when the major film studios owned, for a time, the theaters. Mm -hmm. So like in St. Louis, there's the Fox Theater that was owned by 20th Century Fox. And the government came along and said, no, 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 you can't own... You can't you can't own the production and the distribution. And that and that became the paradigm in Hollywood for the longest time. So CBS, NBC, all the major TV networks, they didn't produce the content. They just licensed it from a studio uh, and then they distribute it. And then here comes this DVD mail order place and they decide to get into streaming. And they started with just content that they licensed from other people. But then they started to produce their own. And now they're kind of coming full circle and they're going to go back to licensing, you know, because it's kind of expensive <laughs> to produce. Especially so many of them are trying to produce really feature shows or movies. And I think that gets really expensive when you get to expensive actors and actresses. Yes. Uh, that, that can add up very quickly. So I'm sure licensing comes back into, oh, maybe this isn't the worst idea in the world. Well, and that and that's the beautiful thing about documentaries right now. Um, in some respects, I don't know if you remember when the last major strike in Hollywood happened. That's when reality television was born and the networks were pretty savvy about, shoot, we need to get stuff on. And um, they were looking for, you know, ways to get things on. And they also recognized that, you know, if all actors, all six actors, I guess there were, 
thank in friends for a half hour comedy we're making an, a million dollars per episode so for a half an hour at a time but they could go and produce survivor which was an hour worth of content and get just as much of an audience you know suddenly they're like ah let's go let's do survivor <laughs> right and that's that's what's happening with documentaries you know a documentary can be made for a tenth of the price of a feature film right and i'm you know, making that number up for what it's worth it may actually be a much maybe much more pronounced than that maybe the 25th or you know, 100th i don't even know depending on what you're comparing to right but the point being is that if it's really great quality mm -hmm. there's an opportunity for that nonprofit to get the distribution and really at the end of the day for the nonprofit they're really trying to further their mission mm -hmm. Right. And so what's communication all about? You know, what's the benefit of of taking advantage of and being your own media outlet? It's about sharing your own story. It's about connecting. It's about furthering the mission. And so you have the ability through storytelling to communicate, put a face to your mission. And the biggest mistake I see that that people in in mission driven organizations make is they overcomplicate the story. Right. Like they try to, you know, get it again because these these are pronounced issues like if your issue is hunger right or poverty i mean some of these things are very layered nuanced challenging topics but we can all relate to a little boy that goes to school hungry right like if you tell that story then that like that connects that's what we connect you know the the beautiful thing about great storytellers is they they distill a story down to a point where it connects emotionally with their audience, right? And the big challenge, you know, I think I shared with you that we just we just did our first contract for a screenplay, and it's going to be based on a true story. And the biggest challenge we face, honestly, is deciding what to include and what not to include. More will not be included, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and this is the challenge that in feature films that when when they option a book, you know, a beautiful book everybody loved. That's a real challenge to take a book that's popular and turn it into a movie and make it a good movie. Because a three or 400 page book, it's, it's just too much content. So how do you distill this thing into a, you know, an entertaining film? It's about crafting. Two hours long. And, and right, exactly. 400 pages in. Yeah, I think uh, most recent example, Boys in the Boat, I, I feel like people have talked about it's a good movie and it was a great book, but the book and the movie aren't the same. And so don't go in expecting the same thing. Um, right. It's probably yeah, a very I'm, difficult process how to change that. Um, yeah. You know, it's fun. I'm, I'm friends with McGraw Millhaven, who's a, a, a radio talk show host here in St. Louis. And his cousin is the most prolific ghostwriter in, in the world, I think, uh, J.R. Mowringham. Uh, J.R. wrote Prince Harry's book. Feels right. like it's hard to be prolific in ghostwriter in the same sentence. <laughs> well, he is. But it all traces to this memoir that he wrote called The Tender Bar, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful book, which I urge people to read. Um, it's about him growing up and McGraw growing up in Long Island. And it was purchased, or optioned, and then sold many times over. Uh, and ultimately, it was produced into a movie that you can watch on Amazon Prime. Uh, ben Affleck is in the movie. It's directed by George Clooney. I think it's a good movie. It's yeah. a, it's a good movie, but it's not the book, you know. And McGraw's not in it, and, yeah. and so and then he was going to be in it for a while, but he was going to be a woman. I mean, it's just funny. It's like yeah. 
Because in Hollywood, what they have to do is if there's a lot of characters in a book, sometimes it's easier to create what's called a composite character, mm -hmm. you know, that, that embodies the same traits yeah. to move the story along in the time period that you have. Mm -hmm. And I look at that book and I think to myself, well, that when that came to the screen, the, because of the path it followed, it was sort of before the miniseries mm -hmm. was popularized again by streaming. You know, mm -hmm. Now it's not uncommon to have something that isn't quite a TV series, yep. but isn't a two-hour movie now turned into a six-episode mm -hmm. miniseries. So you've kind of touched on a number of things. You know, I look at it through the lens of some of the nonprofits we've worked with, a lot of the museums we've worked with. You know, two two pieces that you talked about that really resonated with me. Tell a story. That's been the shift in the museum industry from 50 years ago to to today is, you know, it used to be a present presentation of artifacts to today. It's telling a story and letting your visitor walk through that story and live it as they walk through it. And quality matters because if you don't put that quality into it, people recognize it. It's easy to recognize today. And there are times where it's perfectly acceptable to shoot that video with your cell phone and post it if you're going to, you know, share something on Instagram. But you have to understand when that's appropriate, I think, and, and kind yes. of make that assignment of value as you go through things. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, one of the, we're, we're doing a project for what will be a museum and having been involved like with the Cardinals, when we were um, reopening the Cardinals Museum, you know, museums really are storytelling mm -hmm. institutions, right? Like they, they're, they're a bricks and mortar manifestation of a story, Right. And, you know, accessioning, you know, is a, is a word within the industry of like, all right, how do they get the really cool collection, right? Somebody donates, it, they accession it to the, to, to the museum. Well, one of the things I would challenge museums to be thinking about is like, all right, take ownership of your story, right? Like the stories that you tell and invest in quality uh, content that gets beyond the, the walls, but that you can also use within the, the facility to, to get people to the facility. Right. Like and that's and that's what I see. And I and I really one of the things that I'm riffing on that I really do believe in is the the idea of community, you know, and storytelling. And so many like if I'll just use the Blues Museum here in, in, in St. Louis as an example, you know, there's so many wonderful blues artists that that won't be around forever. And, you know, somebody should be collecting their stories um, and helping them preserve their personal collections. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we are offering is that ability to do that. You know, we work with a, a digital archive company that, that has worked with Oprah Winfrey, with Bon Jovi, with Billy Graham, uh, and many others. And they're very focused on helping preserve people's history. And so, like, I look at the, the, the frame pieces behind you. Those are all things that can be digitally preserved. And mm -hmm. I think back to a conversation that I had with Lou Brock when we were producing our weekly TV show. And of course, typical fashion, um, we had started to break down our cameras and then I asked him how he got into baseball. And he starts, Eric, he starts to tell this most amazing story that I had never heard before. And his wife is pulling pictures off the wall and showing me these things. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, we're like in the man room of his basement and like every inch is covered with, with uh, memorabilia. And so I remember driving back and going to Bill DeWitt's office. I'm like, hear me out. I want to spend your money. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, I want to use the archive company that we have to help him preserve his stuff. And then I want to get his story on 
you know, film uh, because, you know, Bill had never heard the story either yeah. about how like Lou talked too much in grade school and the teacher made him do a book report. Uh, and he picked a book about baseball and that's how he got interested in baseball. He never played organized baseball really until college. Yeah. Uh, because he was failing chemistry and dropped chemistry to pick up PE thinking he would get an easy A, right? Like who, who else can relate <laughs> to the story, right? But the rest is history. Like he ends up getting recruited to the Olympic team. He goes to the Pan Am games, a scout sees him. I mean, it's a tremendous story. Well, it's lost to history because nobody ever really asked him about that. Like when he was in baseball, they were asking him about that night's Until game. Until this podcast. And now it's Until this podcast. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, just this idea that a museum could go and preserve the individual stories of the people that they're they're showcasing, right? Like if you're a blues museum, blues musicians, and you could do a documentary about them, preserve their individual stories, and then have content for your museum for many generations to come. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a, to me, it's like the ultimate win-win, but you need to be thinking about it like a media you need to be thinking about what am I doing from a storytelling perspective? What are, what are the assets that are available today that need to be preserved? What are the individuals, the people, the stories? And when, you know, you're talking about the archiving, it's not dissimilar to the work that we do. I mean, for really all of our clients, it really kind of comes down to, all right, if you're interviewing somebody and they're sharing their personal narrative. Do you have a photograph of that? Do you have a video of that? Do you have a manuscript or a journal or something that we can help visualize? And that's what that's the beauty of somebody like Ken Burns. He has done such a tremendous job with his documentaries that there's actually, like on my Final Cut Pro, it's the Ken Burns, they, they named the feature after yeah. the ability <laughs> to pan over a photo. Like yeah. it's called the Ken Burns effect, right? Um, so he was able to take an old photo and make it come alive on screen, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the world of museums, people get this, right? Intuitively, like it's like, hey, we need to preserve that person's journals, right? We need to preserve those photographs, those, you know, depending on who they are, you know, it's, it's things ephemera that you don't even think about. The rest of us don't think about, but it's what we're looking at in that museum case when we're at a museum, right? Like mm -hmm. if you go to the Cardinals ones, you're, you're looking at jerseys, right? You know, baseballs, rings, interesting things. Yeah. So for our nonprofit listeners out there, what are some of the things that you see changing as we move forward in documentary filmmaking that would be of value to to a nonprofit? I, I mean, obviously, the last 20 years we've talked about has had so much change for people in this industry. What what do you see coming that would benefit or should people should be cautious of as, as they move forward into creating you know, some form of documentary, some form of filmmaking? Well, the one thing that's happening universally throughout the economy, just in general, is technology, right, is transforming the process. So the ability to, to produce, making it more affordable and enabling really creative things to happen. And actually, a, a, a client of mine actually made me aware of this documentary that, that's on where they used AI to voice the person they use real. So the family had said, yes, that it was okay to do this, but they simulate the voice of the, uh, of the person who's the, um, the it's called Goliath and it's about Will Chamberlain. And so it's actual things that Will Chamberlain said, and they're, they're using AI to, mm -hmm. to, to, to voice it. That type of technology is, is happening, right? Deep fake technology mm -hmm. is real. 
And what I would suggest to anybody in, in this space is that be looking at the content that you have and, and ways in which you can have it come alive and be protective of the rights that you, you have, right? So like in the world of storytelling and in Hollywood, it's the derivative rights. So like Hollywood will option a book and they will have derivative rights. So in other words, the rights to do a lot of different things with, that come from the storytelling. That's the thinking, thinking that you need to have as a museum um, or a nonprofit about your story. And what I see as a real opportunity is that the cost of these things is going to continue to come down because the technology enables it. something as simple as transcribing videos mm -hmm. is a game changer for people like, like me and in, in the business that I have. You know, it used to be the journalist, they went and they did an interview, they would have to watch and write down, okay, what, what, what point did that happen? And this yeah. person said this thing. Now you just send it off to Rev and... 30 seconds later, you have a transcript, right? There's software now that allows you to edit a, edit a video, mm -hmm. like a Word document, it's called Descript. There are all of these AI features, right? Like where you, like I did a blog post about Prince, the Supreme Court decision about, it was an Andy Warhol, Vanity Fair case. The point of my blog post was who's looking out for Prince? You know, but that was the focus of my thing. I'm like, I'm not going to go steal a picture off the internet yeah. <laughs> for my thumbnail. So I go to Canva and I, I just type in Prince. And what does Canva draw? It draws the musician, not, you know, the Prince of Wales. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It, the, the case involved a photographer who took a picture of Prince. And then Andy Warhol used the photograph that that photographer took. So the photographer owns a copyright on the photo. Mm -hmm. Prince doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Prince probably signed a piece of paper conveying his name, image, and likeness to the photographers. Mm -hmm. And that issue was the attribution. Really, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it was all about attribution and money. But Vanity Fair used the Prince. Like, they didn't do it the first time the story was, an article was published, but it was really the second time. And the Supreme Court sided with the photographer, I believe. And all throughout that, I was like, who's looking out for Prince? Yeah. Like, you know, like his, why did people buy Vanity Fair? It was because he was on the cover, right? You know, yeah. the fact that he was turned into an Andy Warhol print. That, like, it was just interesting to me that all these people were fighting about it, right? Vanity Fair makes money selling a magazine. Um, they should have known better, right? Like to make sure to do the attribution and all that stuff. But yeah, the point of my blog was, Who's looking out for <laughs> this entertainment? And I think that's, you know, your point to this documentary filmmaking and really kind of the control of rights for all of your production as a nonprofit is owning your process and owning owning everything that you're doing. That's why yeah, because so many times people will option their story and they'll be turned into a villain of their own story, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't, they don't realize that that happened or they give away so much without knowing. Um, and so many of these celebrities that don't own their name, image, and likeness because mm -hmm. of the process they were involved in, like the photographer owns the photographs, the, you know, that's it, this work that we're going to be doing for a museum. That's, you know, we're looking for a hero shot. Mm -hmm. um, and so that they can create licensable merchandise and use mm -hmm. it within the museum. Well, there's anybody that knows in this space, like you can pay a lot of money for photography. Oh my goodness. Yes, you can. And if you're doing a documentary, you know, about music, oh my gosh, 
good luck. I mean, I actually have a friend of mine that's working on a documentary about Fender guitars and the biggest part of their budget is music. Yeah. Yeah. We did uh, the Bethel Woods Museum, which is Woodstock years ago. And there was a lot of acquisition of, <laughs> of images for that museum. And, yeah. And probably music rights, right? Like yeah. at the Cardinals, we would, our scoreboard productions would cut together a really cool video. I'll never forget for the hundredth. Was it, was it? 120 year anniversary or whatever, there was this great video, uh, but we couldn't put it on the website or the internet, mm -hmm. you know, social media, because our license, mm -hmm. the sync license that we had allowed us to show the video within the ballpark, but we couldn't afford what it would cost to share it with people on Facebook and yeah. Cardinals.com. So if the Cardinals can't afford it, your nonprofit can't afford it. Yeah, That's right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. But but really, at the end of the day, all this stuff is intellectual property, right? Like it's mm -hmm. people protecting the property. And so, like if if you if you get one message from me, one takeaway, it's that own it, own your own, because we're in an era where, look, if somebody wants to find out about you, they're going to go to your website. They're going to make an impression of uh, who you are and what you do based on your website and what you say about yourself, right? Like even if a journalist, I I, I saw this all the time at the Cardinals when somebody would come to cover us. I knew like we needed to have have our own story out there. And what and what the reporters would do is they go to the website, they look at our social media, they'd be, you know, heck, I'd be sitting in a board of aldermen meeting with a post-dispatch reporter behind me, you know, as Bill DeWitt's talking and he's tweeting about it. And I'd be like, hey, FYI, the <laughs> other reporter was saying this, this, and this. You may want to speak yeah. to that. That's the world we're in, right? Sure. Tell your own story. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to close out? I think you really closed it out nicely there with, if nothing else is taken away, own it. You own know, your story. I think own your storytelling, not just like your story is your storytelling. You don't have a story until you tell it. So, you know, it's all about the telling, right? Like, otherwise it's just a memory. You know, there's a lot of what I call story source material. Own that too. Definitely. If you're a museum, own all is have a sessioning agreements. If Ron Waterman's donating that to you, make sure. <laughs> That it covers you uh, using it in a documentary or putting it on display at the museum. It's like, yeah, I donated it, but you can't use it for this, this, and this. You know? mm -hmm. So yeah, so uh, I like that. Own it as as that key message. Um, is there anything else you want to share before before yeah, we go? Grateful for the opportunity, Eric. I love what you do. I I appreciate the opportunity and and keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you so much, Ron. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to The Five. Subscribe to our channel and make sure you catch every episode of The Five and reach out to Nimble Strategies today for help with your nonprofit.